All right. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself. I'm here with Alan Wagner, MFT. Uh, <laughs> Great to be here. Yeah. Um, we always like to start off every episode with always the 1-800-SUICIDE number, S-U-I-C-I-D-E. Make the phone call. Call them if you've been thinking about it. If you've thought about it, you don't have to be thinking about it right now. If you've thought about it, because chances are it could come back, make the call. They're there to listen. Don't worry about what you want to say. They will walk you through it. Like I said, I've called a number of times. So make the call. Talk to someone. They're there to listen. Uh, all right. So I'm here with Alan Wagner, uh, who is a is you have a new book that you're going to release. Yeah, we're really excited about it. We have a new book called Married Roommates. My wife and I wrote it uh, for couples. And your wife is also an MFT. My wife is also an MFT. Right. And uh, it's a book actually to help people because what we've noticed, you know, partially in our own lives, but definitely with all the couples that we work with and our friends, is that people find themselves stuck in relationships, especially after, you know, I mean, this could apply to people who are in long-term relationships who just live together. And it definitely applies to married couples. But as the infrastructure of our lives grow and we start to have kids, we start to acquire assets and we're managing our careers, we're managing hopefully each other, people become really overwhelmed and it just becomes a very logistical life. And so we just want to acknowledge it, kind of give it a name and give people some tools on how to help themselves through that. What what are those tools? Because you're, you're absolutely right. People definitely become overwhelmed. I was at uh, Whole Foods the other day and I heard two married women talking about how their husbands can't communicate and mm -hmm. Uh, you know, trying to raise the kids and not having enough time. So what are some of those tools that, that you guys uh, discuss in the book? You know, we discuss ways that, you know, communication has to differ and habits have to change because I think a lot of times people get home from work, they get through their routines, they try to get their kids to bed, but they don't really find the time to just talk about things that are not related to kids, that are not related to jobs, that are not related to their friends, that are not related to their house. And so we really want to help people find the space to be able to take all those things off the table and just start to talk about themselves, what they want, what they used to be like, and how they can integrate that into their life. I think a lot of communication also goes off the rails because people become really overwhelmed and they usually see it as a very critical thing. Mm. And so they stay off of the bigger topics, which keeps things very logistical and safe. But in many ways, lead, I mean, these are the kind of conversations you could have with your college roommate of, what do you guys want to do for dinner tonight? What should we do this weekend? What's going on on Friday? The weather. The weather. Sports, yeah. But it, it's, it's about like changing the habits of people just coming home, tuning out with television or other things, but really focusing on each other and ways that they can be more trustworthy, more accountable. And so we definitely want to be structural people. We, we both work very solution focused. So a lot of what we do is, is about people having a checkpoint, having a place if they say they're going to do something. And you know, because you live in Los Angeles, just like me, you know, as a New Yorker, I moved here and it took a while to sort of catch on to the fact that people don't always follow through on plans. It's, it's not, it's everything is very loose up in the air, figure it out. And for a lot of people that works, but it doesn't work when your infrastructure gets really heavy because then you just, nothing good happens because almost anything good takes planning. And so for the bigger things in life that people want, we want them, if they know this week that they're supposed to, you know, acquire step four of a 30 step task, they do. And now they're on step five. So if it's about saving money for larger purchases, if it's about making plans for a concert that's inevitably going to sell out, if it's about planning a big trip, if it's about you know, just doing something spectacular and romantic that, you know, may require a two month wait on reservations. But what I was going to say was 
a lot of times what I see is that people will say something like I, I even use myself as an example in that I can see a friend of mine that I haven't seen in six months and we'll go to lunch. It's amazing. And we live in the same city, maybe a little bit far away, <laughs> you know, LA traffic, but you know, we'll say to each other after lunch, this was awesome. Like we should totally do this more often. Why does it take us six months to get together? And if we leave that meeting saying, all right, let's try to do it next week. That would be awesome. I'll text you. It means that we're probably not getting lunch. And it's not because we don't want to. I mean, as you know, in Los Angeles, there's a lot of people who will say something like, yeah, call me or we should do something. And they don't mean it. But there are times when people actually mean it, but they don't actually have an action plan of pulling out their calendars, picking a day, picking a restaurant, which inevitably will mean that it will happen. They'll just sort of leave it up in the air. And then some other thing will get into their focus and they'll forget. Not because they don't want to, but just because they forgot. You know, it's it's so important what you said and what I've learned to do because I, I was one of those people too. Would be like, yeah, we need to do this more often. Let's grab lunch, whatever. And I think part of the overwhelm is like, I got to figure out. Wait, what am I doing Thursday? Like, I don't want to think about when I can schedule the next lunch. Mm -hmm. So what I've gotten better about doing is just scheduling it like a week or two away. Yep. And then if we need to move it around fine but at least it's in the calendar totally and so it doesn't you don't have to schedule it and and then stick to that it's just the intention you're putting the intention out there and then you don't have to think about it and then when you check your calendar the day before you can be like oh you can make that call be like hey can we move this to another week or reschedule or whatever for so. sure but I, I think people haven't really embraced the fact that adulthood is completely overwhelming and that there's a million things going on between our jobs and everything else we have so if you're not using a schedule if you're not putting something, you know, next month on this Thursday or next month, you know, the third week you're on the Friday, you're not doing it and you're just going to play it by ear and you're going to do something boring or nothing. Maybe you'll just watch Netflix or something, but nothing against Netflix. But all in all, it, it's really sad. You know, in, in school, people do what they're supposed to do because if they don't show up for a presentation, they fail at their job. They show up for work because if they don't do what they're supposed to do, they don't get promoted. Maybe they get fired. But in their personal lives, they just lack a parent. They lack a parent to themselves that says, hey, you should probably stop playing that video game or, hey, you should probably not eat that or, hey, you should probably be calling about that thing that you wanted to do. There's nobody to say it. And right. so if people don't manage themselves, nothing happens. And so true. I, I used to think that I was like this freewheeling, like, hey, you know, just, uh, yeah, just go with the wind or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, like you said. If I don't plan things, I end up having boring weekends. Yep. And I realized, oh, to have fun, you actually have to schedule it. You oh, actually for sure. have to plan it. And not that you have to I pl plan it down to the detail. Like, you know, my birthday was yesterday, last night. Oh, happy night. birthday. Thank you. And, you know, I planned uh, dinner with a friend. But it was, a, it was our, I was, I, was, uh, I say friend is a girl I met on a dating website. Uh, <laughs> okay. But it was our first time meeting. Wow, and, on your birthday, awesome. And uh, we met at eight. And then, you know, but the, the conversation was so great. Like, you know, we closed the bar down. But I didn't schedule us to be out that late. It was just, it was just a great, you know, meeting. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're right. It's like you, but you do have to schedule things in your in your calendar or else you will just go to your default which is Netflix and and boring no I mean and, and even if you're just talking about married couples which is kind of where our focus goes yeah. sometimes you know it's not that everything has to be done with just your wife a lot of times you want to do something with a group of guy friends but if you want that to happen you're talking about possibly three four or five other guys who have wives kids jobs how do you coordinate 
four people with really busy lives so that they can hammer out a date and go even go away for a weekend to go rafting or do right. something like that. Right. Most people would think that's impossible, but it's not impossible if it's planned. You know, if you're working with your wife, they're working with their wife, you've mapped out a weekend sometime in September, you probably are going to go. But if you don't, everybody's going to be busy. No one's going to know what's going on. And, and so, you know, Talia and I, we really have this theory, which I'm, you know, I'm not saying it's breaking new ground, but, you know, we look at life very much in three acts developmentally, not based on age, but just based on milestones. And the first act is your single life. That's the act where you're supposed to do what you want to do. Sleep with as many people as you want. For if people want to experiment in drugs, do it. If you want to experiment with a career that's a high-risk career, try it. Whatever it is, travel. This is your chance to do these things. This is your chance to figure out who you are, what makes you happy, and hopefully how you want to finish. What is that third act? How will you know that you're happy? The second act is something that I sometimes joke with clients, and I'll, I'll call it the shitty act of life. And it's not that I'm saying that getting married, having kids, getting a house, or having your career spike in a, in a large way, these are all great things. But for some reason, people are unaware of the fact that they all seem to happen simultaneously. At the same time that people start this process, they have a lot of things that didn't exist previously. And it's easy for them to blame their partner. It's easy for them to give up and want to watch TV. But in reality, these are normal things that are going to hit every adult when they hit that stage. And they're not ready for it. And so like playing it, like you said, loose and figuring out what you want to do, you can do that in Act 1 because you have no infrastructure to carry is just you. But when you have birthday parties on a Saturday or Sunday, presents to pick up at Target, um, you know, sports things that you're taking your kids to, you know, other types of community things that you're involved with, it's a lot on top of the fact that like during that time period, that's when people are not working 40-hour work weeks, they're they're working 60-hour work weeks because at that time it's career growth. So they're coming home from work exhausted. They're jumping into other responsibilities and they're hopeless. And a lot of them blame each other. You know, the couples, they'll, they'll talk about divorce. We see divorces happen as if a different partner would suddenly handle it better. But there is collaboration that's needed in a very different way. It's not that I'm saying that that, that stage is like a business exactly, but it's way more similar to a business than people think. When you... Can, I, I, can, let's backtrack just a little yeah, bit. Of course. Where you said... Uh, you see a lot of divorces as if a different partner would have handled it differently. Correct. Can you unpack that? Yeah, it, it's that, you know, when people feel overwhelmed and they get their head below water because they're just trying to remember everything that has to be done for the house, the bills, everything that has to be done on the grocery shopping, everything that has to be done about filling up the cars, keeping the cars washed, getting the mail, going through everything, organizing everything, taking care of taxes. It's a lot of things that people have to handle just outside of you know going to a job and there's a lot of like self-care that just doesn't happen you know people in the past maybe used to go work out more or do yoga or they had more hobbies that they could participate in but finding the time to do that especially with young children because the, the average person who comes to see me if i had to sort of pick an avatar of it it's usually a woman calling although you know there's plenty of men that do too you know i'm just going to give you generalizations obviously but it's usually a woman calling she has a baby she probably also has a toddler and she's hopeless. She can't communicate with her husband. They just fight a lot. They never resolve anything. They just cool off after a couple of days and it sort of goes away and back to normal. There's topics they can't talk about because they lead to these aggressive fights. And so they just feel alone and their partner feels alone too. It's, it's not just, you know, that the woman is the victim in many ways, you know, he feels completely invalidated. 
he feels that you know nobody is telling him any good job stuff he's working really hard and when things escalate it's as if he never does anything and he's just another child in the house and so he starts to feel really down and hopeless and life is really about mirrors and when people look at each other you know it's 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 the mirror that's reflected back at you if you're excited about something and somebody is smiling and nodding their head it's like they gave you permission to feel what you feel but if the mirror around you is a disapproving face is criticism is negativity it's really hard to not internalize that and so it becomes chicken or the egg you know who knows whose fault it is but ultimately if couples are not prepared if they don't do premarital counseling if they don't look at the serious stuff that's going to happen in act two. And that's what I was joking earlier about the shitty act of life, but it's a lot, it's a lot piling onto a human being in a very short period of time. And just because you leave your partner and get a different partner doesn't mean necessarily that that infrastructure changes. It's still the same infrastructure. Maybe that person does a better job of holding the weight. Maybe they don't. People make their assessments because they have these amazing conversations with people and they build emotional connections, kind of like your date last night. You know, you guys talked for hours. It was awesome. The beginning phases of anything is awesome because you don't expect anything from anyone. Right. You share what you want to share. You feel really good and validated. But, you know, I always kind of think about that three month period. You know, after three months is when you start to really see the person that you're with. And, you know, it is, and no matter who it is, like if people are on a summer fling, they have this great relationship. They think it's so great. If that person was to live in the same city as them and wonder what time they're going to be home or be upset that they're late or be disappointed with what they did on Valentine's Day or whatever it is, there's, there's room for disappointment as infrastructure grows because you expect more from each other. And I think a lot of people just think that it's always going to be easy and it's not. You talked about premarital counseling. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk, do you talk about that in the book at all or not really? Um, it's usually the book is targeted more at like married couples, you know, probably already three or four or five years in. But, um, as far as the couples who are listening to this, that are thinking about getting married, I think it's really important that people have a place to discuss the larger issues of act two, because just saying we love each other, we have great chemistry. That's the fun part. But how are you going to raise children? Where do you want to live? What makes you happy? How do you finish? Like, these are the things that people need to discuss. What are the boundaries of family? What is the role religion, if any, is going to play in your life? You know, I think a lot of times in premarital counseling, people will say something about, oh, we're not religious. And they're interfaith, and they're not practicing. And so to them, it means nothing. But at the same time, they still have families attached to them. And it may be that suddenly it's kind of like, oh, at the wedding, we have to get married in this church because this is my church just, you know, that my parents are a part of and it's really important to them. Or we have to get a bris because, you know, we have the baby because it would be an insult if we didn't. And to them, it's symbolic. It's not religious. It's about respecting their family. But to the other person, it's suddenly like, wait, but I didn't know that we were going to be celebrating Christmas or I didn't know that we were going to be, you know, doing this Easter thing. And just because you're not a practicing religious person it is probably going to have some role in the culture of your family. And so premarital counseling is kind of about defining the culture of your family. What is that going to be? Are we the kind of family that if we had kids, would they play sports? Would we want to live in a place that's a large city or would we rather be in a small town where there's more safety and kids can play around on bicycles? Do we care about schools? You know, if we're going to buy a house, like are we buying a house in where, where we are right now in L.A.? where the schools are, are terrible and we have to go to private school. What do you even feel about private school? Because I've seen couples before where one person is passionate about public school. That's what they did. They feel that that's the most diverse environment. They want their kid in public school. 
and the other person is saying, no, I had a great experience in private school and I want smaller classes. And so as opposed to trying to deal with these things, how you're going to have a wedding, what is the involvement of each person's family? What is, you know, the aspects of religion? How are you guys going to save money together? Are you going to do a joint bank account? Because I see couples come in with separate bank accounts and it's really confusing and there's a lot of mistrust around that. So I do think that people need to talk about money. They need to talk about family. They need to talk about their living space. And they need to talk about career goals. Because I've seen couples before also in, in the entertainment field where they thought their partner who worked in production was going to move into more of a nine to five at some point. But as their production job got better and better, the money got better. They got more into that. And now suddenly they're gone for three months at a time. And the other person didn't sign up for a long-term relationship. And so I do think that people need to be clear on what their goals are and collaborate with each other. I know Talia and I get opportunities a lot of times that we turn down. And at the time, to, to an outside person, they'd say, wow, that seems like a great opportunity. Like you could be on this TV show or you could do this other thing. But we turn it down anyway because we understand that the travel, the toll it would take on our family, what the overall gain would be. Maybe it would accelerate some things, but it could also cause a wedge for other things. It didn't make sense. And we work together on those choices. It's not just her working independently or me working independently. For every business opportunity we have, there has to be a collaboration on it. Mm. That's such a great word, collaboration. Totally. Uh, because you, Natalia, have two kids. Yep. Uh, is it a boy and a girl? Two or? boys. So you have two boys, and mm -hmm. how old are they? Uh, 10 and 7. 10 and 7. And so was this book birthed out of your own uh, personal experiences or was it more out of you know what you heard your clients coming in or was it just a, a combination of both? I would say it was a combination of both. You know, I think we both realized that we were living sort of an unhappy life. We love each other. We have a lot of things to be happy about. We've got great kids. But we just felt like we were operating in a machine. You know, I mean, every conversation was just reminders. It was about, you know, fixing something in the house. It was about, and, and people use the word nagging, but it's, to me, when you, when you see nagging or when you hear nagging, what you're really talking about is mistrust. The reason a person has an anxiety response to keep bringing up the fact that they need more milk or to keep bringing up the fact that you need to sign your kid up for something is because they don't trust you to do what you say. Even if, if you said, oh, I'll get to that. Oh, I'll do that. But in the, in the history of, of your relationship, you don't. That's what it causes anxiety. That's what causes these terrible tensions. And so as we started to realize that our life was, I mean, we have a, an interesting history. I mean, both of us were backpackers. We've traveled a lot. Before we were therapists, we had other jobs. And, you know, because of all of the adventures that we've been on in our lives, to suddenly be like domesticated, living, you know, in a, in a suburban neighborhood with kids, going to school functions, you know, doing all of this stuff, we lost our ability to just flow like we did in Act One to just travel, to go scuba diving, to, to do cool things. And our life just became very much the same. It was like Groundhog Day, but like Groundhog Week or Groundhog Month. And it wasn't that we were unhappy. I mean, we love each other, but we just felt such a disconnect. And as we were, you know, we were both couples counselors. And so we see this disconnect a lot, but I, it was the word roommates that really resonated because it just hit everything. And we talk to couples on the phone sometimes, you know, when they're calling. And as soon as you say the word, it's like your roommates. They just get silent because they didn't know what to call it. 
You know, it wasn't like it used to be. It was just making sure that this person does the dishes like they said they were going to do. And this person does whatever they were said they were going to do. And it's not a happy way to live. Act two, you can't get away from the infrastructure. If you're a hard worker, you're going to put time into your career. If you're a good parent, you're going to put time into your kids. If you are a proud homeowner, you're going to put time into your home. Those things you can't change. But what you can change is what you insert in between. You know, it doesn't have to be Netflix. It doesn't have to be isolated behaviors right. of self-care on sitting on your phone or whatever that is. Absolutely. It can be something very different. Because if you're working together, there are these holes of the puzzle where you can still put in camping if you like camping, where you can still put in an art class if you like art, where you can still put in the gym if you want to go to the gym, whatever it is. People have more time than they think, Mm -hmm. but they're disorganized. And so as we started to organize our life and become something very different, I think a lot of our friends were shocked, you know, that we were doing a lot more things than they were doing, but it was because of the planning. It was because of the accountability that we had with each other. And, and, and you have a shared value system, mm-hmm. it sounds like, also, where you both were like, this is very important to be outdoors and, and to explore the world and to travel. And, For sure. I mean, know. we both grew up, you know, doing a lot of outdoor stuff. And, you know, in this world that we live in right now, battling kids on iPads and, and all these, you know, games, and, and you know them probably, the Fortnites, the Roblox, it's... It's so easy, and we see this all the time at restaurants. If we go out, like, you'll just, even in my waiting room the other day, you know, there was a person who brought their kids, and it was like, phone for you, phone for you, and they just hand a phone to a kid. Like, how many times have you been to a restaurant, and you're just watching a parent sitting on their phone, the kid quietly at the table, seemingly behaving, playing on the iPad, and nobody's talking, and it sucks. You know, when you see that kind of stuff, it totally sucks. Absolutely. And so we wanted to give our kids an outdoor life. We wanted them to be in a neighborhood where they could ride bikes, you know, where we have a dog and we could take the dog out and, you know, go for walks or go to the park. It's different. Where we live, there's pine trees and there's hiking trails. And it is important to us that the kids get a different life than just an urban life. Right, because it goes back to what you were saying earlier, how your environment shapes your behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had a... a, a, a uh, how Chris Turner, who was on a previous podcast, and he talked about how him and his wife come home, and I, I th- he gets on, you know, he gets, he opens up the newspaper and she watches TV, mm-hmm. and he said it's because of how their living room is set up that it doesn't foster intimacy. Yep. And I never thought about that of like, you know, where your couch is in relationship to the television, in relationship to. Uh, his or her chair or you know like how does the flow of your house you know set up your behavior like the way how does it dictate how you walk in and where you go and and what you do totally true and you know it was like we were people for a long time that didn't put a lot of emphasis on our furniture you know I think we, we it took a while to grow up and I remember Talia it was really important to her to get this really nice couch and I think for me at the time, I was not as supportive as I probably should have been because I just didn't see it as the issue. But and you laugh, but it's like one of those things. Sometimes a guy just needs a knock on the head a little bit. And, you know, when, when what she was looking for and she got was this cool wraparound couch and the wraparound couch, meaning that it was it's shaped in like kind of a, a V. And the way that it's set up means that we can do movie night at home where we all make popcorn, we all snuggle together on the couch, we can lie on each other, we can, you know, it's not separate. It's not like these couches that are separate from each other where we feel disconnected. Right. And I really feel like it makes a big 
difference you know even if we're just playing a board game you know to have us all sitting on this couch together it changed the entire like living room and uh and i think she was right on that one i'll give her credit for sure are there are there any other uh furniture setups that that you're like oh that makes sense because you know like in uh eastern uh philosophy like, yeah, yeah you know with the tables they're all about round tables because mm-hmm. you know square tables creates this uh, uh, feel uh, adversarial vibe or interviewing vibe, which you know I'm aware of when I go on dates. Of like, I used to always sit across from women on yeah. dates, and now I sit in an L shape, like next to them mm-hmm. uh, on the other end. So we're not, you know, it's not like a, um, we're challenging each other. It's like we're next to we're, we're collect. It feels more. That's interesting. You say that. I mean, I think. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest that I I do like the square table only because of the fact of the shape of the couch. Mm. It allows us to to have more table space to set up a board game if we have friends over or if the kids and I are, are, and and Talia are playing a game together. It just gives us because board games tend to be rectangular or square in, in shape. But I hear what you're saying, and that's an interesting point. I mean, to what you're saying on the seating arrangement, um, that is something that I bring up with clients a lot. Is when I was younger and I would go on dates. I would always look at the people that were sitting next to each other and I would kind of like in my head make fun of them sometimes even out loud probably of like what losers these people were like why would you sit next to the person and not look at them when you could be sitting across from them and see their face and everything like it would just seem like only old people would do that or it didn't make any sense to me and now you know when I go out with Talia or when you know I talk to couples about it I actually sit next to her And the reason why is because eye contact. Eye contact is an incredibly aggressive thing. Mm -hmm. And when people are looking at each other and they're asking each other questions, Mm -hmm. there is an interrogation feel. People don't really pick up on it as much because it's so normal to them. But you know, a, a story that I share sometimes with people is like, if I was dating Talia years and years ago, And it was a beautiful day outside. And she said to me, Alan, it's so beautiful outside. What do you want to do today? I might say something like, I don't know. Let's go see the Dodgers. Because I'm from New York. I grew up, my dad's from the Bronx and grew up a huge baseball fan. And baseball was a huge part of my family. And I moved to LA probably like 20 years ago. And I kind of adopted the Dodgers as my LA team. You know, I'll still always be a Yankee fan, but they're in different leagues. It's it's easy for me to sort of take on the Dodgers. And so if I was to say that to her, she would probably, I guess the truth is, is I wouldn't even say it that way. I would probably say something along the lines of maybe let's go see the Dodgers or go for a hike or go to the beach. And I like all three. And the reason why it would probably continue because in a fraction of a second, I would register on her face. The Dodgers was a wrong thing to say. And it's not even a conscious thing. It's just that as soon as we say something to another human being, there's something their face does. Their eyes light up, their eyes furrow, their eyebrows furrow rather, their face makes a dismayed look or they're confused. There's something that they show. And so when human beings are talking to other human beings, not just couples, even if you're just sitting there at work, maybe like you and a bunch of stand-ups are sitting there after a show and someone brings up something politically and they realize as they're talking about it that there's not an alignment with other people they will course correct and soften what they've said, highlight something else to make everybody feel comfortable. And I think like going back into that Dodger thing, if Talia understood what baseball meant to me emotionally, 
that it wasn't just about the game or the hitter or the pitcher. It was about the experience of being at a game and where that came from. You know, the times with my dad, the times that he would open up a baseball game, that special time for a dad who worked a lot, you know, getting that hot dog, getting that pretzel, sitting outside, the smell of the grass, the sound of the bats, all of the stuff, the wave, kids with ice cream, you know, helmet cups, all of those things were the experience. It wasn't just the game. But a lot of times in life with couples, you know, they'll ask somebody, what do you think of this? And the person will start to say something and then they'll shift what they say because they'll sense that it wasn't the right thing to say. And I think people do that with friends, relationships, you know, it happens all the time. And so when people are sitting side by side, not looking at the eye contact, they can't see if the person is nodding their head yes or shaking their head no, and they continue on with whatever it is they're talking about. And as they go levels deeper, is when they get to the real point that the partner gets. But if you always stay on the surface, when a person doesn't understand what you're saying, they may not even be negating it. They may not even understand the emotional thing that you're trying to express. And that's why I always say in the beginning of dating, and I don't know if this happened with you last night, but you'll go out to dinner with somebody, and then you'll take kind of a walk after dinner. You'll walk to the car, you'll walk around, and you'll talk. And walking and talking and not looking at each other allows people to sort of just go wherever they want to go. Talking on the phone with people, not FaceTime. Same thing. You can just be talking for hours in the beginning. Lying in bed with somebody late at night. You have to be up early the next day. But you're on your back looking up at the ceiling. And you're just stream of consciousness. And I think those are the times when people are most honest. And it's not just for their partner. Sometimes they need to hear those things. Because they forgot them. But when we're so worried about being received well and alignment, which is what happens with a lot of people, it sucks. And people are very inauthentic. It's so true, you know, uh, before we even started this, you know, I I was saying to you like, you know, be free to to speak recklessly because a lot of times we do, um, uh, you know, monitor what we're saying and and, and like, how am I being perceived and how Mm -hmm. this person, and so, but you know, the, the, the downside of that is at some point, we're going to find out what you really think. At some point, we're going to find out how you really feel about yeah. X, Y, and Z. And, uh, and it's, it's definitely better to get that out in the very beginning, for sure. But a uh, lot of times, the things uh, that people think are stupid, when they understand what it means to a person and what it is symbolically, they realize it was never stupid. You know what I mean? Right. So it goes back to what you're saying yeah. about explaining. Like it, to you, it wasn't about just the game. Correct. It was it, it, it was about all these other sensory experiences that you've had and all the memories, mm-hmm. which I think some people uh, fail to explain. They they kind of stop at I just want to go to a baseball game. Correct. And they never really share the emotional experiences, the emotional attachment, all the symbolism, all mm-hmm. the all the things that are you know really are driving their their purpose for wanting to go to a baseball game or wanting to go to Bali or wanting to yep. to start a business, whatever it is. And so the other person never really understands. And so then we say, that person doesn't get me. Correct. Right? Yeah. So it's like, but it's like, you've never, you never gave that person a chance to understand Well, because you saw their, saying. I mean, it's like you saw their signal and mm-hmm. their signal was completely unintentional. You know, I think a person's initial reaction when you're talking to them, they can't really control. Right. And so if they are confused by what you're saying if they're disgusted by what you're saying they don't usually hide that well right and so (laughs) i think it brings up anxiety in human action interactions and i think most people want to feel like they're just like everybody else absolutely that they're normal 
And so when you feel like you veered off the wrong way, you correct. Like in that example that I was giving, I love hiking. Mm. I love going to the beach. And so if I said that all in one sentence and she said beach, I wouldn't be thinking like, oh, that's so fucked up. And you know, that, that I'm not going to a baseball game. I'd actually be excited to go to the beach. It would have just been forgotten. And I think that's the tragedy is that when you take the time to not look at people, to focus on yourself, who you are, how you grew up, what were the things that you really treasured as a kid? What were the things that celebrated you as a kid or made you feel better when you were sad? Who were the friends that you did things with? What did you do? What did you want to be? How did they make you feel great when you were a teenager? How did they comfort you when you needed comfort? You know, those are the things that made you who you are. And right now, you know, as people get older and you're an adult, all you're worried about is gas in the car and making sure that you have enough money to pay your bills and, you know, making sure you're not late for whatever it is you're going to. But you forgot that there were legitimate things, even during stressful times, that relaxed you, that you looked forward to. And for the record, you know, Talia does go to baseball games. Like, <laughs> like now, you know, when, when it, once it was explained, like she loves the, here in LA, we have these Friday night games where they do fireworks at night. Yeah. And they let everybody onto the field. It's so cool. So you can bring like a blanket and you go after the game ends, they let you onto the field. So you're like out on the outfield grass of Dodger Stadium with a blanket, kicking it with the kids, fireworks up in the sky, music playing. It's incredible. Every Friday? Every Friday home game. I had no idea. Yeah. And so we totally, and and like, you know, and, and, and I always know that they, you know, especially in the summertime, they'll start around 5.30, 6 o'clock. And so for those games, like you just get on the third base side. So the shade is on you the whole time. You're not out in the sun. And there's nothing negative about the experience. And baseballs, you know, versus other sports is probably the cheapest ticket you could get. It's not even an expensive thing to do. And, uh, and she loves it. And, you know, and I'm glad that became a part of our life because, you know, she grew up in a family where they hated baseball. Right. And uh, she thought it was a boring, stupid game. Like, why would anybody actually pay money to watch something so boring? And, and what, you know, was, was important about that is the fact that, uh, you know, so when you mentioned baseball, mm -hmm. you know, it, part of your obviously is going to feel like, you know, she's responding to what you said in, in baseball, but really is based on her experiences because yep. your love of baseball is based on your experiences, but her disgust, that initial look of, you know, like, oh, I don't want to do it, is based on what she's been through and how she's viewed it. Totally. But then when she, once you explain it from your eyes, then she gets to see it through your eyes, and then it becomes a different experience for Well, I mean, I could say the same thing. You know, she would talk a lot about RVs. And I know for me as a kid, I didn't know anybody had an RV. It was not something on the East Coast that I saw a lot. Right. And, you know, when I would see them here on the West Coast, I would see like older homes and stuff that had RVs and they'd be these giant monstrosities in somebody's driveway. And I just always felt like if you were going to go out into the woods or you're going to go on a trip, whatever, you know, bring a tent or do something like that. I, I didn't really understand the RV thing. But similar to the baseball thing, I remember when she explained to me about her uncle who had an RV and the trips they would take up the coast. And sometimes they would just park on PCH and it was like they had beachfront property. And they would barbecue and they'd have this like, you know, giant RV and that they would all sleep in together, but it was close quarters. And sometimes with family, even when we're in a tent, we're all in the same tent. And it's not a big deal sometimes, you know, not all the time, but sometimes to have your whole family together in a space like that right. and to be anywhere you want to be, to go into the middle of a national park if you want to and just have a place to stay that has a bathroom, you know, and, and everything. And I, I got it. 
you know, and I understood what it was and, and it became something that, you know, is, is a definite possibility in our life. Whereas if she had not explained to me her childhood experiences about RVs, about, you know, how beautiful it was as a kid, the things that she used to see and the experiences that she had, all I would have looked at is this giant monstrosity in the driveway. You know what I mean? Absolutely. What, um, when couples are, you know, what are some other techniques for getting, getting past or getting through? And maybe, maybe the question is not even getting through the roommate phase. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, you know, you're in that roommate phase and, and you, you know you're here. Are there, because you talked about the three phases already, mm -hmm. but are, th are there steps or phases for moving uh, through the roommate phase to the next phase? Is that well, I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's basically an acknowledgement, right. you know, that people have to acknowledge that what they have isn't working, you know, that it's decreased their sex life, that it has left them feeling you know, not romantic towards each other anymore. It's just roles they're playing. And if people can acknowledge that, acknowledge that they've become roommates in that second act, then they can work together to change it. You know, some people think that's normal and those people won't change it. There are plenty of people who just view marriage very much as like a ball and chain, as, as, a, as just a, you know, you've kind of become domesticated in a negative way and this is your life forever. And I think if you're in that stage, you're not gonna take action. But if you actually acknowledge what's happened, then the next step is, all right, who are we? What's missing? How do we still take care of our kids, take care of our house, take care of our work, make sure that all the bills are paid, do everything we need to do financially, and still do things that make us happy? And that's the organization part, is when people finally realize that as an adult, just like you manage your career, just like as a student you manage your school, you actually have to manage your life. You have to manage how you eat. You have to manage, you know, if you do have special things that you enjoy that are like your treats, the things that you do when you're down, that you've put them into your schedule so that they actually happen. Because if you don't, then you'll always be living this hopeless life and you'll be depressed. You know, I see a lot of people, especially women who come in to see me and they're battling pretty severe depression because they chose to stay at home with kids. And, and I'm not trying to say that, you know, it, it's first it's that it, you that you shouldn't stay home with kids but you should acknowledge the fact that kids aren't really like you know the movies they are <laughs> you know what i mean they're not like television especially when you're talking about young children who are in the ages let's say of zero to three these are not kids who are communicating things to you that are making you feel really good sure they look really cute and but they scream all the time you don't know why they can't tell you why but they're screaming all the time you feel guilty because you're just leaving them there and you're not doing enough tummy time or you're not you know, doing things that, you're, that you feel like are, you're supposed to do. You feel like you're not doing enough. And when you don't have other people in your life validating you, like going to work every day, you know, I don't know, what, I'm sure you as a comedian and I know me as a therapist, we see the impact pretty firsthand of what we're doing. There are times I can walk away from my job feeling really confident. You know, like I really helped people today or especially if it was one client that was on the verge, which you know happens a lot, that you tipped back the right way. You feel really good. But when you're just staying at home and there's no other human beings to tell you that you're doing a good job and that child you know, is, is so confusing to you and they're cute and you're supposed to love them, but they're also you know, incredibly overwhelming and they're not giving anything back to you. They're not saying, I love you. They're not snuggling with you. They're not doing all the things that you feel like they should do. And it's developmentally normal. 
those people go into depression. They just check out and they feel hopeless. They feel regret. And what I always tell those people is that they need other social interactions. They need to, to join mommy groups or daddy groups if it's the dad that's taking on the primary caregiver role. And, and for dads, it's even harder because a lot of times it's hard for them to set up play dates or things with other women without looking as if they're trying to hit on them or something. And so for, you know, if, if they're in a situation where they're trying to integrate with, you know, other moms or dads or stay at home parents, sometimes it's a little bit more difficult for them, but they still need to go to a park. They still need to go someplace and be able to vent honestly about the things that really suck about it. And it's not that you don't love your kid. It's not that you don't want to be a parent, but there are certain times in being a parent, even when they're older. You know, I've, I've talked to friends before, you know, where they're, they're just, they, they feel like their heart is beating a million miles a minute because they just cannot get through a power struggle and their kid isn't listening or won't go to bed or is screaming at them or refusing to do something. And you realize that you don't have the kind of control that you wish you had. And so you just feel so hopeless and you feel ineffective. And I think a lot of people in parenthood feel really ineffective. And it does lead to depression and, and hopelessness. And I think talking about it openly with friends or a therapist is a great step for people. Absolutely. It, you know, uh, you know, that's why I always talk about, you know, give the 1-800-SUICIDE number at the top of the show because just talking about what you're feeling is valuable. Oh, yeah. And, and, and you know, and uh, it's not so much about um, getting to the solution right away. It's just more about making you feel heard and validated and, and like you have somebody that you can, that you can go to and, and talk with. And, 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 and because most of us have the resources necessary to find a solution ourselves, but we do need someone to share it with. And that's the value of a, a therapist, a best friend. Um, you know, we don't, we don't live in the, in the tribal society that we used to live in where there were the, the elders you can go to so yeah we have to you know be proactive in seeking out groups and things of that nature well i think what happens too is and i won't get too into technology stuff but i i will say that you know people live a life of inauthenticity online and so a lot of times what people feel everybody is actually feeling but nobody is showing that you don't see people on social media usually, I mean, although there are these honest people, which I love, but usually posting pictures of their failures, you know, they only post what is their success, their happy kids, their great moments, you know, as a couple. And so it's very easy sometimes if you're measuring yourself against other people to feel like you're losing and it's just you. And, and I wish there was more honesty. I, that's why I, I like your podcast is that there, people have to take it out of their head and put it on the table and let other people say, I get that that's totally normal to feel that way. You have every right to feel that way. It is okay sometimes if you feel like, you know, somebody in your life is is acting like an asshole. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't love them. It doesn't mean that you don't want them in your life. But on a given day at a given time, they can be an asshole. And it doesn't mean anything. And if you have somebody else in your life, whether it's a parent to share about your kid or a partner, you know, a friend to talk about your partner with or, or your job frustrations or whatever that is, once you get it out of your head and you realize that almost everybody is going through it, and that's what we see all over the place. It's not just our professional career, you know, and we, we've literally, between Talia and I, have seen thousands of couples. And almost everybody, they all have different situations and every person is unique, 
But the themes that play out, the unresolved issues, the, the mistrust, the feelings of isolation, you know, even what you were sharing about the friend and he's watching TV and she's reading a book, you know, the separation that happens where it's just two individuals self-coping in the best way they know how, getting through to the next day, that is something that a lot of couples feel and they don't talk about because they don't want people to think they're having problems. Just like in, you know, when, when it comes to suicide, an individual, everyone's going like, well, they didn't say anything. Right. Like I, they didn't know because nobody ever said anything. Right. But they didn't realize that those hopeless thoughts that they had were not unique to them. Mm-hmm. They, they're something everybody felt. You, you know, speaking of which, you, you, uh, you know, not on the podcast, but just yeah. in pro- talking privately, you, you mentioned you lost a friend to suicide. I did. You know, I, I had a friend, you know, that I was really close with in high school mm-hmm. and amazing guy, super talented artist. He was actually like, sounds weird, but he was, he was a tagger and, uh, that's how he did his art. And I'm not condoning you know vandalism or anything like that but he was great but he was great at what he did and you know this was a guy in high school we had a good group of friends and we did everything together we were going into new york city we were you know it was we were a good crew and he lived with his mom obviously like we all lived with our parents but of the friend group he was the only one who didn't go away to college and his grades weren't great he was probably the smartest of all of us because even in high school, the books he was reading were all, you know, existential and philosophical and, and, and things that like most high school boys at that time, you know, and I'm in my forties, you know, nobody was reading, but he knew a lot about a lot of things. He knew everything about underground music. He was the kind of guy who got bootleg tapes and he just knew everything. And he was such an amazing guy. He was brilliant, but it didn't come across in school. And so, he didn't go to college for a couple of reasons. One, he didn't have the grades and one, he didn't have the money. And so the combination of taking out loans with his grades and the schools he could have gotten into, he just figured he'd work for a little bit and figure it out. And so we all went away to school. And I remember it was around Thanksgiving of our freshman year when I got the news and it went down as an overdose. You know, it was, it was opiates. It was cocaine and heroin mixed together. And, you know, I mean, when it comes to overdoses, and I've seen that a few times in my career as well and in my personal life, you know, a lot of times people look at it as, oh, that person was a drug addict. That makes sense. But they don't understand that, like, we live in a society full of medications, you know, and there's some that are legal and there's some that aren't. But people use substances of different kinds to feel better. And I'm not endorsing heroin or cocaine for that matter. As a therapist, I've seen those things deride, I mean, just take people way off their tracks and really sabotage their lives. Those are very addictive drugs and it's very hard to get off of them. And so in his case, you know, he, it started recreationally and when he overdosed, I'm guessing it had progressed into a place that I could never have imagined. And it was devastating. It's devastating to, to lose a person that you looked up to, that you thought was this brilliant person who was going to change the world, but they didn't see that. They just, you know, checked out. You know, and the, and this goes back to what you were saying is the importance of scheduling things that make you happy, scheduling things that uh, re- rejuvenate you, uh, renew you, replenish you, because we we're all trying to find ways to feel better. That's all he. That's all he was taking the drugs for. He just wanted to feel better about mm-hmm. a circumstance, and there's a healthy way to feel better. And then there's a destructive way 
to feel better. And if you're not aware, because, you know, I keep a list of things that I want to do that because I forget. Yep. I forget that when I come home at the end of the day, just stretching in child's pose makes me feel so good. <laughs> but my default yeah. is, uh, you know, cake and cookies and and it just, it you know, I, sometimes I just forget and I'm, I'm like, I'm in. I mean, so much angst or so much whatever that I just go to my default behavior because I've forgotten how how easy and, and how relaxing child's pose is or running a bath or yep. uh, singing a song or just laying on my back or just standing out there on a porch. Like, that makes me feel better to feel the breeze. We have a porch. Totally. That breeze. Like, it's amazing. Or calling a friend. Or, you know, there, there's a myriad of ways that make me feel better. But when we get into that fight or flight system, we're not thinking clearly. Our no. our prefrontal cortex is locked down, and then we go into these old patterns. And so to to keep the list, I not only have it in my phone, I have it on my I have a dry erase board. So I'm I'm constantly being reminded of exactly. I mean, I, I do the exact same thing that you're talking about on my phone. I have a massive to do list. Mm -hmm. We have the dry erase board. Um, I, I think otherwise you just forget whatever you don't do today will just overwhelm you tomorrow. Mm. And that's kind of how I look at life. You know, there are times where I don't feel like doing anything, but if I just do something, it's one less thing that I have to do that week. And it's usually not as hard as people think, but you know, to the point of what you were saying sometimes about, you know, the people in our lives, I think we have to also look at who we surround ourselves with, who are the models. You know, I, I remember in college, you know, I was, I was kind of, you know, a person like a lot of people, you know, going a little crazy my first couple of years. And a lot of my friends were failing out of school and they were getting kicked out. They were doing really bad at their classes. And it was probably like my sophomore or my junior year, I guess maybe it was the beginning of my junior year that I remember looking at this one friend in, in one of my film classes and he was a straight A student. And at the time, I didn't really feel like I had a lot of connection with him. But as we got closer, you know, I really liked him. There was a lot of things that overlapped on us with music and concerts and and just our similar interests and, and what we like to do socially. And surrounding myself with straight A students changed my performance. Because a lot of times, if the people around you are not really successful in whatever it is, you can sometimes reside in a place of mediocrity because you just don't feel like you're failing like them. And it's the same thing with drugs. It's like people who are using certain drugs that are harmful, they'll minimize it because of the fact that they don't use it as much as other people. And I think it's it's something that when we measure ourselves, like you know that expression, misery loves company? Absolutely. You know, it's you have to look at sometimes the people in your life and are they harmful or helpful? Are they people that if you were venting about a relationship, would they just immediately take your side and demonize your partner or where they hold you accountable. If you're trying to reduce or eliminate drug use, are they the kind of people who are going to push you to still do it or drink, or are they going to respect that and, you know, do something else? And, you know, and in the case of my friend who passed away, you know, he was, he, his, his, from what I've heard from other friends, you know, he had become really good friends with people who were heavy users. And so his drug use went from, let's say the middle all the way to the extreme. And when you're around people, you know, for me even, you know, I love that I have friends that are far more successful than me. And it's not that I'm jealous of them at all. 
I learn from them all the time. I motivate myself to be great. You know, some of them I've surpassed, other ones I'm still below, but I don't look at it that way. I'm not trying to beat people. But I also know that if I was surrounded by some, you know, a bunch of therapists who were not doing great, I could look at my life right now and feel like I'm good. There's no reason to get better. Everything's going great. Look at me. I've got a successful private practice. I'm not working with insurance. Like, this is all great. I don't need to be better. There's other people who are just salaried therapists. They're making far less money. They have shittier hours. But you have to sometimes look at the people around you that you want to aspire to be and then learn from them. Don't be jealous of them. Nobody achieves success mm. by luck. All the people I know that are very successful work their butts off. They didn't come home and watch TV. They stayed up late working on their entrepreneurial ventures, just like you probably, you know, as you on this podcast and your stand up. And you, you don't want to be around people that, oh, I do stand up. And once a month, they go to an open mic or something. You want to be around those people that tour. You want to be inspired. You want to look at yourself and figure out how do I get better? And if you can be around those people, you will surprise yourself by how fast you can excel, how fast things can go. But when you stay in social environments just because you're too lazy to make new friends and they're not helpful, they're the same as you and you're just living an unhappy life together. I'm not trying to say that like you always have to outgrow your friends. I have friends that I don't even talk to anymore and if they called me to bail them out of jail in a second, I would do it. But I also had friends that I remember, you know, when if, if there was something I was trying to reduce, they they were not easy in that regard. They made me feel bad if I didn't want to do something. And it sucks because I don't want to feel compelled to please them at my own expense. But they didn't really understand how those things were harmful to me. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's I, I love what you said about like there are friends that you've had that you haven't talked to in a long time. Mm -hmm. But if they called you for something, you had their back. And oh, I have always. friends like that. Because I think we live in such a world of, of uh, 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 black and white, of like so many, you know, I'm not sure, are you on Facebook? Yeah. So there's so many people on Facebook who are like, they're like, I'm getting, I'm getting rid of a hundred friends or a thousand people or, you know, uh, you know, just you gotta cut the negativity out of your life. And, and it's like, you, you can't really cut people out of your life. It's a very small world. They can circle back in, in different ways. But what you can do is reduce your exposure to mm -hmm. people. And I have friends like that who I've reduced my exposure to. But if they called me, I would buy, you know, I would do whatever I had to do to bail them out. But it's because I need to expose myself to a different group and different tribe of people so that I can grow in the direction that I want to. You know, and oh, then maybe sure. I can circle back to those friends that I, I don't have as much contact with. But for now, it's kind of like a kid leaving home. Yep. Like, I love my parents and, you know, I love my neighborhood. I love Chicago. But in order for me to grow as a person, I have to move to L.A. Yeah. And I might move somewhere else. But you have to you have to let go of something. You do. You know, I, I find that, like. You know, it, even friends that are jealous or haters on you, you know, like there's those frenemies. I, I sometimes would say to people about this, the client sometimes, I'd say like, if you imagine these three buttons and there's three anonymous buttons that a person can push and they can hit one button and something really bad will happen to you. And you'll never know it was them, complete anonymity, but you'll lose your job, your career will tank, your marriage will go bad, your kids will have problems, whatever it is. 
there's another button they could push and nothing happens, nothing good or bad. And then there's another button they could push where something incredible happens to you, some huge success. And they won't get any credit for it. You'll never know it was them who did it. But you'll have this immense success. And I think sometimes when you meet people in your life, they all can be broken down into these three buttons. You know, I have plenty of friends that don't root for my career, they don't root against my career. They're just good friends. And I have other friends, you know, that are different, you know, that really want my success. And they will throw me ideas, they'll do things, even through this book process, you know, I have some good friends who've been doing things for free that are super talented, work in, in high level industries that would literally have cost me thousands of dollars. And they're doing it for free. They're mentoring me through this process of setting up a YouTube channel, of setting up, you know, videos for marketing, of, you know, engineering, sound engineering things, things that I don't know anything about. And they're not asking for anything. Like they legitimately just want me to succeed. And then, you know, there's other friends that, you know, if they knew what my hourly rate was and, you know, if I mentioned to them or they overheard it, they suddenly just become like, oh, must be nice, you know, or they'll make a comment about the car or some trip that you took or something like that. And they'll, they'll say it in a way that's sort of sarcastic, but you could feel that they're pissed off. Absolutely. They don't think it's fair. They don't think you deserve it. They work hard too. They don't, they don't know how hard you work. Nobody knows how hard you work. Nobody knows the kind of life that, you know, we have as therapists. We work long hours, each of us two nights a week, you know, get home at night, sometimes 10 o'clock at night. And, you know, in other days, you know, there's so much scheduling and marketing and everything that goes on into running a practice. And then going through this process of a book and all, not just the book itself, but all of the formatting and all of the stuff that you have to do to market it and sell it and have it in the, in the right things. And that type of a process puts such a stress on people and they don't even know. Like any success, they're gonna think, oh, you got lucky. There was no luck involved in this. It was a lot of hard work. But in a way, there's these people sometimes that are in your life, but if you're happy in a relationship, there's a part of them that's like unhappy because maybe their relationship isn't great. Instead of learning for, from you from what works and being excited for you legitimately, there's a part of them that either thinks you're lying or that, you know, that's fucked up. You don't deserve it. And you know, the, 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 what I found too is, uh, with those people is they don't ask enough questions. Yeah. You know, because like you said, a lot of us, whether through social media or even in our conversations, mm -hmm. we, we present is, is one way. And, it, and of course we're going to lead off with our best foot. That's how we're taught. Yeah. It's like, somebody asks you how you're doing. You say, I'm good. I'm fine. How's my relationship? Oh, it's amazing. And you talk about all the highlights of the relationship. Right. And, so, so uh, most of us will just react to that information instead of digging a little deeper and and finding out the the like oh man there's oh you oh you wrote a book like you know oh that's great but if I dig a little deeper I'll find out that you wrote a book after you put in a twelve hour work day <laughs> right and you were writing it until three o'clock in the morning and your wife was wondering when you were coming to bed and the kids were. Uh, upset because you know uh, you, you couldn't make their game because you were writing the book. Like when you get into the details of someone's success, then you, you lose get the that sacrifice. ego, right? You understand the sacrifice. You understand the work that was involved, and it wasn't oh, just totally. I wrote a book. It was like no, like oh, my wife. When I think about how many nights she stayed up just going through edits, revisiting chapters, changing a word that appeared too much, the smaller details yes. of everything, mm -hmm. the cover art that wasn't working, the marketing videos that were, you know, like every little decision that she was making or that I was making, 
it was so much. And then there's other people like they know a friend who wrote a book on Amazon and they're just like, oh, great. You know, your friends and your family will buy it. Good luck with that. And they have no idea the level of thought we've given into how we're going to market this thing. Mm -hmm. It's not just like put a book on Amazon, hope for the best. Like there were so many steps we went through. To, you know, so many podcasts that we listened to, so many YouTube shows that we watched, so many books and articles that we read to really understand that there's somebody else who's always blazed the path that you're trying to achieve. Whatever it is you want in life, and that's why I said, you know, surrounding yourself with successful business people, even if they're in different industries, you know, asking them questions, learning from them. Most people love to share their success. Absolutely. Like if you listen to podcasts, which I'm sure you do, there's, no matter what it is you're searching for, there is an expert who's done that. And they're telling you exactly how they did it, what the obstacles were, how they got around those obstacles. This is the, the sites that they learned are the best sites to go for this type of service. This is the best approach they did to a marketing platform. Like there's so many times that people just fully divulge everything. And your friends could do the same, not just like professionals on you know podcasts and things like that, but even your friends who are succeeding can tell you how they succeeded. But if you just are a jealous person, or you don't want to know, then you're stuck with who you are. But I believe in life, there's doers, and then there's people who don't. Mm -hmm. And the people in LA that you meet a lot of times are people who are just like, oh, one day I'm gonna do this, or it'd be so cool if this happened. And it's like fantasy. It's You have to sort of manifest what you want to happen, mm -hmm. go backwards on the steps it takes to achieve it, whether it be time or finances or whatever that is, and then go step by step by step, and you will hit every goal. And I look at this world sometimes, and people look at, especially in entertainment, at some people who get to high levels, and they just think it's nepotism, or they think it's luck. It's not. The people who were out there hustling, the actors that were trying to get into stuff, people who want to be agents, people who want to be producers, or directors, or writers, they didn't just sit there and wait to be found. Because nobody who's powerful is ever looking around saying, who else can I pick up? Who am I gonna help? It's not that they, you know, it's not that they don't want to help you. It's not that they think they're better than you. They just don't even know who you are. They're not even paying attention to you because they're focused on goals. They're not looking down. Right. And so people just watch these other people above them doing so well. And they just are resentful and they give up. But you know, to another thing that you said earlier, I don't mean to jump around, was when you were saying how everyone just says fine and good. You know, one of the, the tools that we do with couples sometimes is a check-in. Because when, what I mean by that is, is that like, let's just say that I'm coming home from work having a terrible day, you know, the traffic, maybe I had some bad days with clients, maybe I lost clients, maybe there was something, you know, on the stock market that happened, or I got into a fight with a friend on the way home. And I walk into that house in a terrible mood. And I don't even really have awareness of it. I just know that I'm overwhelmed and I'm pissed off. And as I walk into the house, I notice that there's all these dishes in the sink and they, they haven't been washed and there's food on them. And my first instinct would be to go on attack, to just attack the fact that somebody left dirty dishes in the sink. I'm not aware of how I am. If somebody was to ask me, if I was like, hey, how was your day? And I said, oh, it was good, or it was fine. You know, we didn't tell each other anything, but we're bringing our environment. She may have had a similar day too at work, or maybe I had a rough day with the kids, or she had a rough day with the kids. Something happened, but we're taking it out on each other over small things. And the small things are just the trigger points of something else. So a lot of times with couples, I don't want them doing fine and good answers. They walk in and they have to do this dorky thing where they get really close and you can't see it on a podcast, but they'll get really close to each other so they know they're doing this and they'll say, how are you? 
like in a kind of a weird voice that is saying basically, oh shit, we're doing that therapist intervention. And they both have to stop for a second and come up with one feeling word that they're feeling. Overwhelmed, angry, excited, proud, something. Because think about how many times you come in and you're so proud of something that happened, something really great, but you never even talked about it with your partner because you were immediately handed you know, laundry duty or picking up on kids or some repair that needed to happen. And it's like you just swallowed your pride and they never even knew that something really great happened to you. They never got to be that mirror and it's not their fault, it's kind of yours because you didn't even give them a chance but there was never the space to do it. So I do want people sometimes to take a pause when you're reconnecting. This could, it doesn't even have to be like a couple, it could just be friends, it could be family. But starting it with that, how are you? And taking a second to think about what feeling word fully describes at that moment what you're feeling. Because once you say that, then at least your partner understands what they're dealing with. It's so much more transparent. Okay, it, it, he, you know, maybe he went off on the dishes, but that's not really what this is about. You know, maybe something else is going on. And now she knows or he knows. And I think if you let people know your feeling state, it's partially for them, but it's also for you. Because most people never know how they feel. And because, you know, our, you know, we've mentioned this a million times on, the, on different podcasts in that a lot of people have a very limited emotional vocabulary. You know, I, I've it's grown true. up with, uh, you know, I'm cool and pissed. Those are <laughs> the only two emotions I was aware of. And so it's, it's very important, you know, in order for that, that check and to really be powerful is that you expand your emotional vocabulary. And there's a bunch of uh, there are different you just Google emotional words and yeah. there's like an emotional wheel or something like that. In our office, actually, I don't know if you saw that, we have this, this uh, picture on the wall by the desk and it's, it's kind of for kids. It's like they, they do it a lot for kids where they show all the emotions with like a feeling emoji face to kind of express it because I think a lot of people, like you said, they sort of simplify it into happy, angry, sad, you know, and, and it can be a little bit more specific. But, you know, I think people, if they get into practice of something, like a lot of times... You know, like I know for me personally, I was not like a verbally expressive kid um, or, or guy, a man. And I know where it comes from. You know, I didn't have that kind of parent father that was saying like, I'm proud of you or, you know, you're doing so great at this. Like I, I kind of would always hear about things, you know, secondhand from his friends. Oh my God, your dad was telling me about this. He's so proud of you. He can't believe this is happening. But it was never direct. It wasn't that he wasn't. It's just that he wasn't really expressive about it. And so I just remember sometimes with, with ex-girlfriends and, and even in my marriage, these times where good things would happen, but I just would sort of smile to myself. Like there's a story that I sometimes share in sessions with people where, you know, it really hit me hard where I was working two jobs. I had an agency job. I was starting this private practice. Uh, my wife and I were in the very early parts of our relationship. And I remember coming in and we lived in this apartment that had no street parking. It was like these big wide driveways and, and it also had street cleaning and stuff like that. So sometimes we had one carport spot, one of us would take the spot and the other person would have to find street parking. And that was normal and it was my day to find street parking. And I remember cycling around, circling around rather, this entire neighborhood looking for a spot and I had to park like three, four streets over on the street cleaning side. So I was in a pissed off mood and I'm walking back, everything bad that day had happened at both jobs. And I remember walking back into my apartment and as I'm walking in, I'm carrying one of those travel coffee cups, you know, that people have. And I trip on something by the door. 
and it falls, splashes all over the carpet, the nasty coffee with milk from the morning. And now I'm cleaning the carpet. And I just remember what an asshole I was and how aggressive I was. Like, not physically, but just an emotional asshole. And I felt, you know, whatever, and I kind of calmed down. I was starving. I hadn't eaten all day. And I remember going into the pantry, and there was this box of Lucky Charms in the pantry. And my wife, when she was first with me, like, there were certain parts of me that she didn't like. You know, she didn't like that, you know, there was, that I like stupid movies. She didn't like that I liked that my like sense of humor. Like <laughs> Yeah, like that or, you know, some of those other ones that, you know, like, whether it was an Adam Sandler or whether oh, it was, you yes, know what I mean? Like, right. just like movies that are Will Ferrell, like, you know, like goofy, stupid, almost like SNL humor where it doesn't always work the whole movie, but some scenes you just like peeing in your pants. It's so funny because the scene itself was so perfect. You know what I mean? And so, you know, whether it was a South Park or, you know, just like uh, there was a juvenile man-child aspect to things sometimes. And sugar cereals were something that I didn't really have much as a kid. But in college, I got really into and I knew that they weren't good, and I knew that she was a much healthier person than me, so she wasn't a fan of that. And, you know, I didn't buy it that often. But as I opened up the pantry, I remember seeing inside this box of Lucky Charms. And I remember smiling to myself, like, nice, in my head, you know? So I poured myself a bowl, and I started eating, and I was already feeling better. And I remember her coming up to me and saying, hey, did you see I bought Lucky Charms? And I was like, yeah, thanks. And I'm, like, looking around our apartment, and I realized that she had moved all of our couches she had changed all the pictures in the picture frame. She had cleaned the kitchen. She had loaded the fridge with all groceries, including buying that cereal. And I hadn't even said anything. I was a total jerk. I didn't say anything. It was just like, oh, thanks, you know? And at that point, I realized that I had a problem. You know, that all the feedback that I had gotten, you know, that I wasn't a verbally expressive person. And I realized that I needed to change that. And that's the thing for your listeners that they need to understand is that the way that they are, the way that they respond, it's all something that can be changed if they want to. It's just how you were ingrained. It's the habits that you built. That's how you got to where you were, that this is the way that you behaved. And just because you are a certain way doesn't mean you, can be, you can't be a different way. And so for me, I knew I wanted to be more verbally expressive. I knew I was going to be a parent one day. I didn't want to be a dad that didn't tell his kids he was proud of them. I didn't want to be a dad who didn't notice artwork but just noticed dirty laundry, and that was all I spoke about. And so I knew I needed to be better at expressing myself. Even though, like, I'm a 40-something-year-old guy, like, that was not something in high school that was like, guys should verbally express their feelings. I grew up in a time when, when we shouldn't have. You know, that was a weakness. And so I remember using my phone and I put two reminders into my phone. One that went off that said, look for something great. And another one that went off that said five to one. And the reason I said five to one was because I realized that all human relationships should be built in a way like if you want to like this is a kind of a work thing too that if you're running an office or you have employees if you're praising your employees at least five times as much as you criticize them your employees will feel safe they will be happy and if you have negative feedback for them they're not going to be thinking they're getting fired or seeing it as a bad thing they'll just course correct because they already feel valued and irreplaceable and for some reason like you know but if you're a critical boss let's say and you're criticizing them all the time, then every time you walk into their office, they're terrified. They are gonna stop working to the best they can. They will work to not get fired. They will not take risks. They will do things that won't get them in trouble, but won't get them fired. 
And when you have people working for you that behave that way, your business is never going to be great. But in our human relationships, we should be doing the same thing, praising people at least five times as much as we criticize them so that they know how irreplaceable they are to us even when they make mistakes. And so the reason why I put those into the thing was because I needed to be reprogrammed. And you know, there's this book that talks about habit making, that it takes 66 times of doing something before it becomes a new habit. And then you just do it, it's who you are. And I do believe that. I mean, I, look, some people can say less, some people can say more, that's like the sweet spot. But when you start doing something, if you wanna be a person who wakes up at five in the morning and goes running before you start your day, it will take you a couple of months of that alarm going off and you talking yourself through the fact that you didn't sleep well or you'll do it later or you have a rough day today or whatever excuse you'll come up with. But eventually you'll be this person on a vacation who's waking up at five in the morning and running because it's what you do. And so for me on that verbal expression part of it, I really saw the changes that, you know, even in this building, you know, if I go to a guy or a girl in the elevator, not in any sexual way, but just happen to notice that they have a cool sweatshirt on or that their hair looks cool that day or something. And I'm just like, hey, man, your hair looks good. And then I just get out of the elevator and I walk away. And so I'm sure in a moment they're probably thinking, of, that's weird. Was that guy just hitting on me, you know, male or female? <laughs> but I wasn't. I just saw something cool. Their phone, their shoes, their, you know, whatever it was they did that day, their belt. And as I walk away, I can almost imagine the eyes behind my head. And they're at first confused, and then they're kind of smiling because they picked that out because they wanted it to, to make them, they wanted people to see it. They wanted to express themselves that way. And I saw it, and I said it out loud. And I think whether it's strangers, which is not as important, <laughs> you know, to do that kind of stuff, but for sure your friends and family, people could be a lot better at walking into human interactions looking for what's great and saying it verbally. And if you're not an expressive person and you don't have that kind of vocabulary, learn it. Use your phone to prompt you so that you get better. Like in the beginning when I'll assign this for couples sometimes, the comments will be like, hey, I really like your shirt today. It looks great. And the person can say, shut the fuck up. You know, you're just saying what the therapist told you to say. But if they do that, the person will stop doing it. If the person keeps doing it, those will suddenly change over time into, I love the way your nose crinkles when you're reading something interesting, or I, I love the way that even when you're cooking, you're already setting the table and you're just knocking stuff off. You're so efficient. It's awesome. Because they are doing it, but no one's saying anything. And when somebody says something, what does it make the other person do? They do it more. They got the praise, they got the validation, of course they're gonna do it more. If you like that somebody brought you lunch, you know, to work, they're going to bring lunch again. If your kid, you know, gets that kind of feedback about cleaning his room or about the art he's doing, he's going to do more art. His room's going to be cleaner because he wants you to be proud of him. He wants you to be happy. And I think people miss that. They just react. And they're not aware of the fact that they're bringing in a lot of environmental baggage, but they definitely don't do a good job. And like I said, for me, wasn't raised that way. I could have easily been like every other guy and be like, oh, I don't talk like that. But I do now. And that happened much later in life. So I don't think, you know, I, I worked with people who were seniors. That was my first population. And you can change your whole life. It's harder as you get older because the habits become more ingrained. But it's always possible. And people just sort of get stuck in this is who I am. And I think that's also going into the suicidality and everything else. They don't realize they could be different. They don't realize that nobody likes me and you know this is who I am, I'm a terrible person. Well, first of all, probably that's not true. But second of all, 
they could be a different person that everybody likes. They just need to figure out what that is. Absolutely. You know, and, and even though you were talking about the five to one for other people, right. Five to one for yourself also, you know, True. especially for people who are depressed or having suicide ideations. It's like, you know, practicing self love and, and finding five great things about yourself and five or five great things about your day or five great things that you've done. Or, you know, like my, like I said, my birthday was yesterday mm -hmm. and of course, there was some anxiety about turning a year older. You know, I'm 43 now. And, uh, but what I did is I looked back through my calendar of the past year and I wrote down all of my accomplishments. Nice. And I, and I, I, I you know, there were so many things I had forgotten that I had done. And I was like, oh, yeah, I did do that. And I did meet that person. And I did check this off my bucket list. And, and as I started to do it, like, I felt so uh, empowered and powerful and, and then I was excited for like, now I'm excited for 43 because I'm like, oh man, I actually said I was going to do some things and got them done. Of course, there were things I said I was going to do that I didn't get done, yeah. but that's part of life. Like you're not going to check all the boxes. Of course. You, you know? know, I mean, I'm not a big fan of New Year's time. resolutions, but I, I do believe in setting goals and looking at markers. And I think to what you said, you know, there's a thing, you know, these gratitude lists or affirmations or things like that that people talk about. And sometimes people hear those and they suddenly think, oh, no, religion or, or something like that. It's not true. You know, I think every person could get into a habit of writing down in a notebook five things they're grateful for, five things that they're proud of. And if they did that and reflected kind of like what you did, you know, weeks later, months later, at all the things they've accomplished, all the things they really are grateful for. A lot of times what you're feeling is a really bad day and you don't have perspective. And you know, there's this one thing that I remember hearing a long time ago, which was this person was saying like, when you have things ahead of you that you dread, things that are causing you anxiety, the human mind is so amazing and, and our imagination is so amazing that what'll happen is, let's just say, and this is gonna sound like a weird example, but let's just say we're talking about like a colonoscopy. And I don't know if you've ever had to deal with that. It's, 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 it's a horrific thing. Yeah, you're nodding. Okay. <laughs> okay. So if somebody knows that they have a colonoscopy scheduled next month, but they keep thinking about it, every time they think about it, their body is going through the experience of the trauma of what that will be. And it's causing them distress. Almost similar, if you were to map them out against a person who's really doing it, the way that the brain is responding, the, the physiological responses, they're mimicking it, and you're living a trauma over and over again of something that's happening. Maybe it's a birthday coming up of a friend who passed away. Maybe it's you know some deadline that you're scared you're not going to make, or whatever the negative thing that you're thinking of, the negative thoughts. And what the person said was, instead of thinking about that, think about what it's going to feel like two months after it's over. Think about some of the really bad things that have happened in your life, that at the moment that they happened, a bad breakup, a job you didn't get, or something you got fired, where you felt like you were screwed, like you were hopeless, you didn't get into the college you wanted, you didn't, you know, your career is failing, or, or whatever it is, and you're feeling so bad about something that's imminently coming up. And if you think past what you felt then, and what you feel now about that experience. I'm not saying that anybody looks back on a colonoscopy and says to themselves like, that was great. But at the same time, months later, are you really thinking about it anymore? And the answer is probably no. It was a shitty experience that happened, but it's in the past. And so I, I, what always gets me about suicidal ideation 
is that the person is stuck in the moment, the moment where they just got fired, the moment where they're losing their house, the moment, you know, where whatever it is that's going on for them, and they don't see past it. But in their life, there have been other experiences that were tragic, that were disappointing, that at the moment that those things happened, they felt their life was over. And their existence on this planet years later have shown that it wasn't over, that they surpassed it, that it was shitty, but that it's over and something else is there. And I wish people had that perspective. And I think that's the dark place where those suicidal hotlines and things like that, hopefully a person talks them into those things so that they understand that whatever they're feeling is not going to be their life forever. But you know, I understand that level of hopelessness that people feel. But I, I do think that we have to do a better job at, at looking at how our brain interprets things. And like you said on those accomplishments, there are times where I'm down, maybe it's not a busy week or something's going on. And I stop for a second and I don't measure myself against other people. But I look at where I was. Where was I? You know, I remember starting a private practice. I remember working two jobs. I remember how happy I was when I would come down to the office for one client. And I don't have perspective. And it's like I can look at a day like my Mondays, for example. My Mondays are super busy. I'll start early, maybe around 10, finish around 9. And I'll see a lot of clients in one day, maybe an hour break in between. And it doesn't affect me clinically. I'm, oh, I love being a therapist. I love getting into people's stories. And so whether you're my third client, my eighth client, I'm there. It doesn't affect me and how I work. But as I look at the day ahead, I can feel very overwhelmed about how many hours I'm going to be working, how late I'm going to get home, all of the negative stuff that are tied to that, the traffic that I'm going to hit on the way there, just everything. Maybe even on the session, on the, on the client list, there's one client that I don't even want to see because I know that they're not, they're not practicing what they're supposed to practice and, and it becomes something that you know disappoints. But as I look at that day, I can reframe it very easily and say, how lucky am I? How many therapists would kill to have that many clients coming in in one day? That wasn't my life years ago. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome that I work two hardcore nights, but then there's other days that I get off work and I'm with the kids. I'm taking them to things. I'm being present at their activities. I'm picking them up from school. Other people don't get to do that. There's a lot of positives to what I do and negatives. But if I focus on the negatives, that will be my feeling state. Right. I will feel like a victim. And, you know, and to circle back to what we were talking yeah. about in the beginning in terms of scheduling and, and planning, you know, if you do feel overwhelmed, I'm not saying you directly, yeah. but for the listeners out there, validate that and take that seriously. Take note of those moments that cause you to feel overwhelmed. Like, for me, it's the same thing. Like, sometimes my schedule is crazy. And... I what I do is you know I I do the same thing you do where I look back at when I didn't have anything booked and, yep. and no and I wasn't working with anybody and I was like twiddling my thumbs and wondering you know if I was gonna have any you know you know why am I even getting out of bed there's nothing to do and then so that kind of gives me perspective but the second thing I also do is I say okay how would I like this to be because right now this feels unmanageable right so. What can I? What can I? What seeds can I plant so that in the future this isn't always the exactly. situation? Well, right? that's that's the third act stuff that I was mentioning earlier. Okay, is that you know my wife and I have a very clear understanding of how we finish. I think everybody has different you know goals, and I think that's something that every couple in premarital should talk about to make sure that they're aligned and what they how they want to be. But I know that 
I'm happiest when I'm mobile. I'm happiest when I'm traveling. I'm happiest when I'm not in the grid. And that means that I can't just quit everything and do that. That would be not a smart move to do at this point in time. But if I can manifest what it looks like to be happy and then work backwards on what are the steps that a person who has that life would need to do. If I wanted to be a therapist that you know could work remotely, if I wanted to build online presence, if I wanted to do coaching stuff internationally, if I wanted to you know travel and speak, you know all of those things would be adventurous. But how does a person build that? And it, you build it in a very methodical way. Nobody does those things unless you have a reputation, unless you're good at what you do. And so there's the steps that you build to build a platform like that, but then there's also the you honing your skills and being good enough to execute it. And so if I just stayed happy with what's going on and I can just look at it and say, look, you know what, my life isn't that, it's this, it's great. It's not perfect yet. And so when you're saying planting the seeds, I don't want people just to fantasize of like, yeah, one day I'm gonna live on a beach. But I can tell you that one day I'm gonna live on a beach, <laughs> you know? And I know that with certainty. In an RV. In an RV, possibly an RV, possibly an RV, but I'm gonna, and it's gonna be awesome. And so I understand that the choices that I make have to bring me to that. And what that means is that, you know, every opportunity that we get that's media related, for example, I don't want to be Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil seems awesome. Dr. Drew, you know, they've got TV shows, they get paid the big bucks, everybody knows their name, they're famous, they can write books. But to me, they're sort of enslaved in their own ways. They still have to show up at the TV studio to record episodes. They still have to follow the schedule of the producers. They may be compensated well, but they're not truly free. And so that's not the life. And anytime we get opportunities sometimes that would take us more into television, let's say for an example, as if it could be like a TV show or something like that, those are things that we stay away from. Like we don't mind using television to market books. We don't mind using television to market media things that we're trying to do. It's a great platform. You reach a lot of people. Podcasts reach a lot of people. YouTube channels reach a lot of people. But we don't want to be in a situation where we're 10 years from now, 15 years from now, tied into this rat race again. Just a well-compensated one. Right. And so you kind of have to figure out what you want. You know, if you want to be an actor, you want to be a comedian, you want to, like whatever it is, what is it that you want to finish as? Because a lot of people don't think that through. They actually work hard and they achieve everything they thought they were going to achieve and find themselves trapped, trapped in something. So I do think that it is important for people to really, you know, have a manifestation. Like I talked to the, my friend about this and he was saying, oh, my, my wife was talking about manifestation. So you just kind of like close your eyes, you visualize something and it happens. And I was like, okay, no, um, that's not how manifestation really works. It works because you close your eyes and you visualize a shot, an image of a life that you wanna have. Maybe it's my kids as teenagers and we're sitting in Yellowstone Park. Maybe it's my kids as teenagers and we're you know, down in the marsh off of the, you know, Florida or whatever, riding one of those boats looking for alligators or something. But I have to sort of see that and then figure, work backwards as to what would it take to make that happen? What would I do this week so that I wouldn't be at step zero if I can break that thing into a 60 step three year task, what can I do each week and hold myself accountable to that so that I'm like, holy shit, I'm at step 17. I'm not at zero. I don't have it yet. I didn't really get any initial gain, but I can feel good about the fact that I just marked off. Now I'm at 17. I got to get to 60. Not there yet. 
but I'm not at zero. It's not a pipe dream anymore. So anything that a person can manifest, and I believe this, and I've worked with entrepreneurs, I've worked with people that are really successful, they see it first, they work back the steps, and they hold themselves accountable week by week to doing small things until they hit the markers, and then things accelerate. And I know my wife and I, we don't make New Year's resolutions, but we do make five-year plans. And a lot of times we hit them way earlier than five years, because once the momentum starts, sometimes things just kind of fix themselves. But you have to do that early infrastructure building of anything that you want. And I think a lot of times people just look at things, they you know pine after things, they're resentful, they feel hopeless, but they're really not giving themselves credit for the fact that if they just did certain things, there's far less talented or less intelligent people than them that are doing it. You know, look at all these YouTubers, and they're you know people are, are thinking, oh, that's crazy that they make so much money, but it's not easy to be a YouTuber. It's not easy to edit that footage, build a huge channel, do all that other stuff. They didn't just get lucky. They worked their butts off. They did step by step. They bought that equipment. They practiced on it. They learned how to edit it. They put it up there. It wasn't great. They put another one up there. It got a little better. And then maybe like 20 episodes in, they had awesome titles. The music was working. They were bringing on guests. Like Their fan base got sent into other circles. And now everybody knows who they are. And their, their subscribers went up. And things all changed. But it wasn't like they just got on YouTube, had 2 million subscribers, and suddenly were making you know a million dollars a year. Nobody does that. But I do believe that you have to manifest what you want. There's always a path there. There's always somebody else who's done it. You just need to learn from them. Beautiful. Well said. Sure. Uh, thank you, Alan You're welcome for doing the podcast. This is very enlightening. I know I learned a lot. I'm sure my, my listeners got a lot from this. Uh, when is the book going to be available for everyone? So the book's coming out on April 19th. So it'll be out in about, I guess, a month from today. Looking forward. Fantastic. April 19th. Say the, the title of the book again. Married Roommates is the name of the book. So definitely feel free to look at it. Um, we have a YouTube channel also, Married Roommates channel, that's going to be having some content coming out soon. And uh, definitely, you know, check it out and I'm really looking forward to seeing what and people think where can people reach out to you I, I, we mm -hmm. know your schedule is already packed with clients but we're, if there's someone um, who wants to reach out to you work out uh, work with you um, they can always check out my website my website is a Los Angeles therapist.com so it's Los Angeles therapist with a little a in front of it so there you can always reach out by email you can also call my office um, you can definitely always check out our website as well the married roommates website at marriedroommates.com and um, and then like I said you know we're gonna have a YouTube channel up I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks uh, with some good stuff so looking forward to to getting out there and getting to know everybody I'm excited thank you so much for doing this thank you guys for listening in be well and we'll talk to you next time awesome